please take your Bibles and open them to the Old Testament book this morning of Jeremiah. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah. If you take your Bibles and try to open somewhere toward the middle, you might be close to the Psalms. If you are in the Psalms, keep going to your right. Uh, you'll stumble across several books. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, uh, Isaiah, several others in there. Um, until you come to Jeremiah, if you are in one of the minor prophets or Daniel or Ezekiel or anything like that, go to your left until you come to Jeremiah. And we will be in Jeremiah chapter 31 this morning. Jeremiah 31, a very important, hopefully familiar text of Scripture. Now it is that season for us where we celebrate what we call Christmas uh, where the church at large looks at the coming of Christ explicitly and with a very pointed lens. Christmas, as I was thinking the last several weeks about what we would be doing this uh, month, I really began to think about Christmas as a season of promise. Because it is a season of promise. And it's not a season of promise in the sense that every year a promise is made. But Christmas is a reminder that a promise has been made. And more than that, Christmas is a reminder that a promise has been kept. And the reason that is so is because God is a God of promise, isn't He? In fact, we relate to God as a God of promise, and we can relate to God in no other way. God's very first interaction with humanity, Adam and Eve, was based upon and built upon a promise. If you obey and you walk with me, and keep my instruction, you have this garden, and you have the fruit of the trees, and the fruit of the vine, and all that you would ever need here in this garden, and you, you will be with me, and I will take care of you. That's the positive aspect of a promise. Promises also contain negative aspects. The negative aspect to the promise with Adam and Eve was, if you disobey, what? You'll die. And you'll be removed. And lots of other things will happen. The very first interaction of God with humanity has been an interaction of promise. And the continued interaction with God and humanity is an interaction of promise. And the reason that must be so is because we have a God who is far beyond us, transcendent, exalted beyond us, who is infinite, relating to the finite, right? How else do we interact and relate to a God who is supernatural and far above us except for Relating to Him and interacting with Him based on the promises He gives to us. And so we live and we relate to and we, we interact with God based on promises. And the Scriptures are full of them, aren't they? They're loaded. Promises about how He'll treat us. Promises about exercising faith in Him. Promises about the consequence of sin. Promises of warnings. Every way we look at God, we relate to Him based on His promises to us. That's why we do say that believing in God, true biblical belief, isn't just mental agreement that He exists or that He's true, but it's actually trusting in what He says. Trusting in His promise. Trusting in His Word. Trusting, exercising faith, that when He says, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, that He'll actually keep that promise. That if I call on the name of the Lord, God will be true to keep His Word and He'll save me. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to have faith. God is a God of promise. And Christmas is a season of promise. Where we look at the promise that God has made and the promise that God has kept. 
And that's what we're going to try to do the next several weeks. Look at these promises. The promises of God from the past. The promise of God brought to reality in the birth of Christ. The promise of God for our future with Christ. And we're going to start looking in the Old Testament with the promise of God's path, the promises of the past that God has made to us about a future, about a salvation, about a time with Christ. So look in Jeremiah chapter 31, and you should know this passage. Make a note of it in your Bible. Make a mental note of it in your brain. It's a very important passage for you to memorize. One of the highlight passages in the Bible is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah is prophesying and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's a new covenant promise of God made in Jeremiah chapter 31. Before we look at that passage, I want to run us through some highlight promises of God through the Old Testament as quickly as I can, which many of you know means at a snail's pace. The first one occurs in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's the fall, uh, the chapter where Adam and Eve have sinned. They're in the garden. And that's the very first promise we find and discover that God makes concerning a Savior. And it comes right in the middle of the curse declared upon the serpent. And in the middle of that curse, God says, I'm going to send the seed of a woman and He is going to crush your head. He's going to have victory over you. Right embedded in the midst of sin, in the darkest hour of humanity, God makes a promise. And in the midst of that darkness, this burst of light of hope comes forth. One is coming by the hand and direction of God who will have victory over the serpent and reverse what He has done. There's a few things to take note of in that promise. First, God says the seed of woman will come and have victory. That's not common language. Usually when we refer to the seed of humanity, we talk about the seed of man. But there's a point in God saying the seed of woman because the one who's coming will be born of a virgin, won't he? He's the one who will declare victory. We also see this immense picture of mercy As God makes such a promise right in the midst of the worst moment in all of human history. When all of humanity is plunged to its lowest point. 
when all hope is stripped away and all chaos reigns and destruction has taken its throne, right in the midst of that darkness, God makes a promise. It wasn't after the world bettered itself. It wasn't after things got it all together. It wasn't after time had passed. God immediately makes a promise. The other thing to take note of in that very first promise is that sending a Savior was not plan B. It was God's plan all along. A Savior, at the very moment sin has entered the world, a Savior has been promised. A Savior who will take care of what has happened. Let's fast forward a few generations to some other promises God makes in the Old Testament. We're going to basically walk through the major covenants in the Old Testament. The next one comes with a man named Abram, who will become to be known Abraham. Most of us know him by that name, Abraham. It's in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and even into Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 15 is really the very uh, official formalized covenant that God makes with Abraham. But Genesis chapter 12 is where God begins to call him out to follow him. Abraham or Abram at that time in Genesis 12 was a was a pagan man, which means he didn't follow God, didn't worship God. He worshiped false gods. He lived in a secular world and worshiped and served idols. And God calls him out and God calls him to leave his home and leave his family and to obey his word. And he says, because of this, because you're doing this, because you will do this, because I'm calling you, I'm going to make a promise to you. And the promise to Abraham is that God will bring a great nation from him, which is miraculous because Abraham and his wife, who will become known as Sarah, are barren, which means they cannot have kids. And God yet says, I promise that you will have a son. And that from that son, a great nation will come. And God says, I also promise that you have a promised land. I'm taking you away from your land, but I'm going to give you a land. And then he makes this really earth shattering, earth shattering promise that through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul tells us later in the New Testament, indeed, the rest of the scriptures teach the same thing. That in that promise to Abraham, God is foreshadowing the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Now, how does Abraham's promise get fulfilled? Well, in the immediate context, it's with the birth of a son named Isaac. But in the larger plane of God, it's with the birth of a son named Jesus. Who is the true promised son of Abraham. That constitutes the true people of Israel. Who will be the true blessing for all the nations of the earth. God makes a promise to Abraham, but that promise is fulfilled in a Savior who will come and be the blessing for every person who comes to Him. Fast forwarding from that promise, we come into Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20 and more formally Exodus chapter 24 where God makes a covenant with the people of Israel and He makes that covenant through a man named Moses. So we call it the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant. This is a unique covenant that God makes with His people. It's a governing kind of covenant. The other covenants are more based on expectation. This one dictates how they operate and live as a nation, as a people. So God issues forth laws, laws of ceremony, laws of morality, laws of 
of legal national standing, God also institutes something called the sacrificial system. And as He makes this covenant, He's making it right on the heels of the delivery of the people of Israel from Egypt. They're at the mount called Mount Sinai. God is writing His first Ten laws, ten commandments on stone. And in chapter 24, Moses ratifies everything with blood, even sprinkling blood on the people of Israel. And God says, obey my word and you will be my people. And he says, here's a provision for your sin sacrifices to be made to me. This is the first time in Israel's history that they have a way to address their sin before God. It's the first formal way God says, I will deal with your sin, but I will deal with it temporarily. The sacrificial system is not a permanent way of dealing with sin. But it is the first way to deal with sin. It is the first way their sin was addressed. But embedded in the sacrificial system is a constant reminder that the people of Israel need what? Something greater. That these sacrifices aren't cutting it. That we'll have to offer them for the end, for, for the rest of our lives, to the end of time. And even still, we need something greater. Every sacrifice points to the need of a greater sacrifice. The author of Hebrews tells us that. We're going to look at Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 in just a moment, but I want to point out just a few um, verses from Hebrews 9 and 10 to illustrate this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1-4 through 4 says, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Just... In the chapter before, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. We're told of that greater sacrifice. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing what the Old Covenant could never secure, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God makes a promise to the Israelite people and to Moses. And in that promise, in that covenant, He tells them how to address their sin. 
But embedded in that way of addressing their sin is this constant reminder that their sin isn't really dealt with. They need a greater sacrifice for their sins. The author of Hebrews tells us that greater sacrifice is Jesus. The Savior. So even in the covenant with Moses, there's a pointing to a Savior who will come. One who will finally come and be the true prophet of the Lord and take care of sin once and for all. Fast forwarding still to kind of the final major covenant in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 17. It's a covenant made with King David, a very familiar character. We call it the Davidic covenant. Eventually, Israel gets tired of living how they're living. They grow discontented with everything. And they tell God that they want a king to rule over them like the other nations. A king who will deliver them. A king who will... um, Uphold and enforce laws and things of that nature. God eventually appoints a man named Saul, who turns out to be a marvelous disaster. And then he appoints a shepherd boy named David. And he tells the Israelite people, this shepherd boy, David, will be a picture of a greater king. And then God makes a promise to David. And interestingly enough, God makes his promise in the context of David trying to make a promise to God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to promise to God to build him a house, to build him a temple. And God interrupts and says, no, I will build you a house. And God tells David, I will establish your throne forever. And one will come who will sit on that throne forever. And he will be a son to me, God says. It's a covenant, it's a promise of expectation again. And it becomes the dominating picture of the Messiah or the Savior for the Jewish landscape. They are looking forward to one who will come sit on the throne of David and deliver them. Only they get it wrong. They think that they need delivery militarily. They think they need delivery from other nations, delivery from their enemies. And even in Jesus' day, they think they need delivery from Rome. But God has a greater picture, a greater deliverance in mind, doesn't He? He has liberation to the highest degree in mind. There's going to come a king who will not only establish peace for God's people, he will deliver them from their greatest enemy, even the enemy of death itself. All these promises God makes, reminding for generations over and over, I'm sending one. I'm sending one who's going to do things That no one else can do. I'm sending one who's going to change everything. I'm sending one who's going to instruct, who's going to deliver, who's going to make right like no one else can. And then we come to Jeremiah 31. This last covenant being promised and foretold. It's a new covenant. It's the covenant that all the other covenants are pointing to it's a covenant that fulfills and describes all the other covenants now let's talk about the context by which this covenant is given it's given in his uh, israel's darkest hour historically as a nation they're in the midst of the Babylonian exile, their Babylonian captivity they had a lot of things that they did wrong as a group of people as a nation uh, of people This one is the most impactful. The kingdom is already split in two for Israel. The kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, north and south. 
So things have already begun to fall apart before this moment. And then all of a sudden, this, this foreign nation, this pagan nation, comes in and captures them and conquers them. And more than that, they begin to haul them off to a foreign land. In Jerusalem, and even worse, the temple is left in ruin and desolate. And a very small fraction, a very small remnant of people are left behind. The vast majority of God's people of Israel are taken to Babylon. And it looks as if all these promises that we've already talked about that God has made over these generations now won't come to pass. And furthermore, in all of this, what makes this darkest moment the most impactful is that God Himself is the one who sent them into exile. Not only has a pagan nation come and carried them off and seemingly squashed all the promises of God, ruining the house of God, defiling the people of God, taking them from the land of God. But this foreign nation did it at God's own hand. A few chapters earlier from Jeremiah 31, God tells them that. In chapter 29, verse 4, it says this. God basically looks at Israel and He says, get comfortable because it's not ending anytime soon. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And He tells them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, live your life. Because I've sent you into exile and it's not a short period. In verse 10, he tells them, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. But not before then. And so it's in the midst of this dark moment of Israel's history where all hope for the other promises seem lost where there doesn't seem to be any sign of a conquering king, where there doesn't seem to be any sign of a true prophet coming, that God makes this promise of the new covenant in verse 31. Let's divide this covenant into two, two sections. It'll be easier for us to look at. The first section will be verse 31 and 32, and the second section will be verse 33 and verse 34. And let's talk about this new covenant that God promises in this very dark hour for Israel. The first part is verse 31 and 32. It's the promise being made. And there's three elements we want to highlight from the promise being made. The first one being, it's futuristic. The days are coming, God says in verse 31. Which means, I'm making a promise that's not for these days that you're in. It's a, it's a time for the future. Now God is actually not very specific here. He's very broad in general. He doesn't tell them or us what those days look like, when those days may come. Sometime after the Babylonian exile, 
But really, we know the truth. The days don't come until the birth of Christ comes. So God, what is God doing in, in telling them something about the future like this? He's reminding them to hope in Him and trust Him. All the promises and all the covenants of God are built upon that foundation. Our salvation is built upon that foundation. God wants you to have faith in Him. God calls us to trust Him. That He will keep His word. And that is what's happening here with the Israelite people in exile. I'm telling you of a promise that will take place in the future. And until then, you need to hope in me, trust in me, have faith in me that I will see it through. Secondly, to take note of. God does all the work in this promise. You find this phrase in here, and there are a few other indications in the text and the structure of the text, but explicitly the phrase, I will God speaking is made seven times in these four verses. I will, I will, I will. All of God's promises are built upon God alone. Not upon us. It's God who does the work of giving this promise. It's God who does the work of securing this promise. It will be God who does the work of completing this promise. Nothing of any of God's promises are built upon our deserving them. Or our ability to keep them. God's promises are based and built solely, definitively upon Him. His will. His delight. His accomplishment. His pleasure. Which means these promises are not shifting. They're unchanging. They're not lacking. They're not deficient. They are based and built upon God. And promised by God Himself. We get a picture of this when God makes the promise to uh, Israel, the covenant with, with Israel, um, the, the Mosaic covenant. And Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to what God says to these people. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That same principle applies to us today. It always applies to people when God interacts with them. It's nothing of our own doing. It's nothing of our own ability. It's nothing of our own worth. God makes a promise to His people purely based out of His own love for them. Purely based out of His own delight, His own pleasure, His own... Will. And the same is true here with this new covenant. Why does God send His Son? Why does Jesus allow Himself to be nailed to a cross? Why does God offer anybody the forgiveness of even one sin? And it's not because we bring anything to the table. It's purely out of His own love. His own grace, 
His own mercy. In Ezekiel chapter 36, you find the new covenant referenced again, but in a different way. It's by a different prophet. And over and over in the passage of Ezekiel 36, God's saying, I will do it for my name's sake, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, for my name's sake. Not because you have earned it. Thirdly, the third element about this promise being made is that it's contrasted with the old. The new is contrasted with the old. Look in verse 32. It is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And he explicitly references here the Mosaic covenant when I brought them out of Egypt. The governing covenant. The covenant of laws and the sacrificial system. He says it's explicitly not like that one. Why? Well, the old covenant was ineffective, wasn't it? We looked at that in Hebrews. We've talked about that briefly. The old sacrificial system is an ineffective system. And why is it ineffective? Because of our inability to keep it. We cannot obey the law. We have not obeyed the law. It was rendered ineffective because we have the complete inability to obey God's law perfectly. And there was no provision to enable us to obey it perfectly. And so it's rendered ineffective. Broken. Able to be broken. Verse 32, he tells us that. They broke my covenant though I was their husband. How will the new covenant then be? Well, not based upon us. That means it's unbreakable. It's a promise that God is making that won't go away. It's an eternal promise. A promise that since it's centered upon God, won't ever be deficient. It's a promise, according to Ezekiel 36, in which we will be enabled to follow and believe when God puts His Spirit within us, living with us. It's not a covenant that will be based on our ability to keep it. So we have those three elements. It's futuristic, it's based solely on God's work, and it's not like the old covenant in which it will go away or be rendered ineffective by our inability to keep it. It's different. Now very quickly, verse 33 and verse 34, what exactly is the promise? The promise is explained in these two verses. We know it's futuristic, we know it's done by God, guaranteed by God, enacted by God, all these wonderful things, but what exactly still is it? And there are three more components I would show you here. I'm a good Southern Baptist, aren't I? Three more components to show you from verse 33 and 34. The first one is, in this new covenant, in this promise, there will be knowledge and conformity. Knowledge and conformity. This is the covenant, he says in verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And the first thing is, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. There's a certain degree of knowledge of the law of God. Christianity is not a thinkless faith, is it? It's one that engages the brain. It engages the mind. And God would have us to know certain things. But this knowledge isn't just intellectual knowledge. It's a knowledge that resides in the heart. It's a knowledge that occupies the heart. It is always true, church, that if our theology doesn't affect our hearts, it's not real theology. 
God does not just care about engaging your mind. It never stops there. It always engages your heart. And that's exactly what God says is going to take place here. There's coming a time when there will be an understanding of my law that changes people. That brings real, effective change to the inside of a person. Not just mental agreement, mental understanding. It's a beautiful description, isn't it, by God? Because the first time He gives His law, He writes it on tablets of stone. This time, He writes it on the hearts of His own people. It's not a law that's external to us anymore. It's a law that's internal now. It's a law that's been imprinted and stamped upon our very souls. It's a law that changes us. What does it mean to have the law of God on your heart? Well, first, let's talk about what the law of God is, because it's not just a long list of do's and don'ts. It is primarily a picture of his character, isn't it? It's a it's primarily a picture of who he is, of his morals. So what does that mean if that is imprinted upon the souls of the hearts of his people? It means, number one. We're conformed by it. It's working on us and it's shaping us and it's transforming us and it's it's taking away the old and it's putting in its place new. It's what we call sanctifying us. It's working us over to make us resemble the very character and morals of God. It's making us reflect God himself. It's on the inside of us shining out. But also, if it's put and imprinted upon our hearts. By God's own finger, it means we delight in it and treasure it. What a work of salvation. What a miracle to go from people who spurn God's truth and reject God's command to actually being a people who love it and delight in it and live by it and are governed by it. In Psalm chapter 1, we're told of that kind of person. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers nor stands in the way of, of sinners but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates both day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water who yields its fruit in his season. His leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. But those who stand like the tree planted by the streams of water are those who delight in the law of the Lord. There's coming a time God promises to his people. When you will love my law, you will be influenced by my law, you will know my law, you will have me on the inside reflecting to the outside. The second aspect of this covenant is relational. It has a very strong relational element to it. I will put my law within them, verse 33, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. There's a relationship that will exist. An actual, real, honest, authentic relationship. I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard it in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Quarantine does weird things to your brain. But I heard it in the last couple of weeks where a person was testifying or talking about when they knew they were converted. And they said it was when I knew and had gone from just knowing God to relating to God. He was no longer distant. 
He was no longer removed. He was no longer just some being out there. He was a friend. He was a father. He was a Lord. There's coming a time, God promises, when I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the fall, in the garden, one of the consequences of sin was that the relationship with Adam and Eve between them and God was broken. And the Bible tells us that because of their relationship with God being broken, the rest of humanity's relationship with God is broken. It's called original sin. We are still accountable to God, but we don't have a relationship with God because of our sin. But in this new covenant, this new promise, God is promising to reverse those effects of the fall. And a God who was once removed because of our sin is a God who will become near to us and relatable to us. It's a major point emphasized throughout all of the Scriptures as a major point of salvation. I want to just show you one quick example. A minor, minor prophet named Hosea has a weird encounter. Finding Hosea can be tricky. Just a moment. Hosea chapter 1. His weird instructions from God. Let me read to you chapter 1 real quick. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take yourself to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name Not My People. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. If you flip over in Chapter 2, God is still speaking about this instance. And in verse 23 of Hosea, He says, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And He shall say, you are my God. The same language is used again in Zechariah. And in Revelation chapter 21, fast forward to the very end of time. I want you to see this. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. In Jeremiah 31, God makes a promise where that will be true. There's coming a time when my people will be my people and I will be their God. Notice what he says furthermore in Jeremiah 31. Into verse 34, he says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What a marvelous, wonderful earth-shattering, life-changing truth that not only will God have a relationship with His people, He will have a relationship with His people individually. Each and every one of us will know God personally. No more human mediator. No more need for a temple. No more need for a, for a priest. God will know us both corporately and He will know us Individually, you are not just lost in a sea of faces if you are a son or a daughter of Christ. You have full, complete, non-expiring access to God Himself. Because God has made a promise that one day, from the least to the greatest, they will all know Me. Thirdly, in this text. The third component to the new covenant is the forgiveness of sins. These things have gone in descending order from least important to the most important. Now, all of these things are important, but just like when you build a house, if you look at a house and you look from top to bottom, you're looking at least important to most important. The roof is least important compared to the foundation. You get the foundation wrong, it's all wrong. Get the roof wrong, you just replace the roof. It's all important ultimately, but some things are more important than others, right? Well, so it is in this covenant. Knowledge and conformity by the law of God in your heart is least important compared to the forgiveness of your sin. Because knowledge of the law of God and conformity by it is impossible without the forgiveness of your sins. The third aspect of this covenant is the most fundamental, the most necessary aspect of the covenant. And God says in verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. How do we live by God's law? How do we have a real personal relationship with God Himself? How does the Holy God relate to us as sinners? He removes our sin. He removes the obstacle. He removes the hindrance. Notice again the language. It's worth repeating. I will. God is the one who acts and God is the one who works. God is the initiator of your salvation. God is the sustainer of your salvation. God is the completer of your salvation. God is the one who calls you to salvation. 
Based out of love, based out of grace, based out of mercy. Salvation isn't of our own ability or power or works. Sin isn't dealt with by our own will or desire. It is dealt with by God. And notice, secondly, not only does he act, but notice the nature of his actions. Notice the nature of his dealing with our sins. Two two things are mentioned there in verse 34, the last phrase. Forgive and the phrase remember no more. God's not just being repetitive. There's a reason and a point for the language and the words he uses, right? Every word matters. He says, I will forgive and I will remember no more. Forgive means he will pardon and absolve you. We use the word justify. He will take away your guilt. And declare you innocent. And furthermore, we know he will take the righteousness of his son, Jesus, and put it right on top of you. And your account of debt, He takes away and pays. There's a wonderful passage. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. God forgives your sin in a legal transaction where He takes and pays the fine and the penalty Himself so that you might be free and righteous, forgiven. The second phrase, this phrase, remember their sin no more, means your sin is removed and erased before God. What a comfort church that God isn't going to bring my sin up from three years ago and hold it against me that when I'm declared forgiven I am fully completely and entirely forgiven Psalm chapter 103 verse 12 says as far as the east is from the west so far does he remove our transgressions from us God does not Hold your sin against you, Christian. He removes it. And remembers it no more. As if you were really, truly, honestly, innocent and guiltless. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, He talks about the Father loving us, His children, just like He loves Jesus, His Son. You know how radical that is? That's amazing, isn't it? That God might look at us and love us and think of us and care for us just as if we were as perfect as His own Son. But that's what He does in forgiveness. Now very quickly, how does this all take place? How does it happen? The answer is found in the same answer that's given to all the other covenants. How are those other covenants fulfilled? In a Savior. And specifically in Jesus, right? Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, when He's instituting the Lord's Supper, He says, My blood is the blood of the new covenant. He inaugurates this new promise. 
In Matthew chapter 1, we're told explicitly when the angel speaks to Joseph that this is the very reason Jesus comes. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. A new covenant promise. I said we would get to Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10. We're not going to have time this morning. I would encourage you to read that. It's all built on this fact that Christ is the mediator of a greater promise of God. A greater covenant. A new covenant. Where He by His own blood takes away sins. And deals with sin. You know, it's interesting. I... I thought about and studied these covenants this week and I began to see them corresponding to certain things. For instance, the, the aspect of the, of the new covenant where we know and live by God's rule corrects what happens in the fall when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's rule. The relationship that we have in the new covenant fulfills ultimately the relational aspect of the Abrahamic covenant where God's people are made His own. Forgiveness in the new covenant fulfills the sacrificial system of the Mosaic covenant when a greater sacrifice is offered on behalf of us. What do all of those things require? What do they all have in common? Jesus Christ. Christmas is a season of promise. And the promise is this new covenant. Where God looks and says, one day I will do something that I haven't done that's not like these other things. And I will deal with sin permanently and fully and completely. And I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will have relationship with you. That doesn't have to wait till heaven. That begins even now here on earth. And I will put my law within you and you will be changed by it and transformed by it and live by it. Reflecting me to the world around you. Church, the good news is we live in the time of this new covenant now. Christ has ushered it in with His birth and with His death and with His resurrection and with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. We live in the time of the new covenant. What was a promise in Jeremiah 31 is a reality for you and I. Which means we can have our sin forgiven and removed. And we can have a relationship with God. And we can love the Word of God and live by it and be changed by it and molded by it and enjoy it. Even find life in it. What is required for that? Faith in this God. The same faith that was required for the Israelites to believe that this new covenant would be true, the same faith is required of us, that it is true. They look forward to it coming true. We look backwards and say it is true. We believe God is fulfilling it. We believe God has sent His Son. We believe it applies to us if we turn and trust in Him. Unbeliever, you have an opportunity to be forgiven of your sin and reconciled with God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Behold, today is the day of salvation. While God's arm of mercy is extended, it could be your day of salvation. Where this new covenant becomes a reality for your life. 
Believer, if this new covenant is a reality for your life, if this is how you are relating to God, if you are living in this promise with God from Jeremiah 31, today is a day of thanksgiving, isn't it? Today is a day of praise that God would forgive us of our sins. Maybe today is a day of confession that I have sin in my life that does need to be dealt with. A day of repentance. And a day of deep gratitude. An exaltation of a God who would so love us that He would send His only Son to pay our penalty on the cross. Die on that cross for our sins. But resurrect also for our life and eternity with Him. I trust God's Spirit will show you this morning how you ought to respond.